Welcome to the Worthing Museum and Art Gallery podcast. I'm Dr Sam Bars, and over the next six episodes, I'll be going behind the scenes, exploring a different aspect of the work that goes on in the museum and the people who make it happen. Hi, thanks very much. Please, you're right. What does a curator do? What kinds of objects does the museum have in its collections and how do the team look after them? How did the museum's story begin and what are the plans for its future? I'll be speaking to staff and volunteers at the museum to reveal the answers to all of these questions and more. Oh no, I'm not going down here. This is the old library, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. This series accompanies the Museum and Art Gallery's Female Voices exhibition and begins and concludes by considering the women who've played a key role in the museum's story. Oh, a penny farthing there. Not your average. (laughs) This episode is all about researchers. Oh, where is Jill? Oh, she's here. Sorry, Jill's there. Sherry is there. Sorry. Yeah. Um, okay. okay. There's quite so, a lot of people in the room. Yeah. yeah so, <laughs> Not just us doing it. <laughs> yeah, we got we got some yeah some lovely human remains up here. When the collections at Worthing Museum aren't on display to the public or on loan to museums around the globe, they're playing a central role in all sorts of cutting edge research. The human remains in the archaeology collection are currently contributing to high-profile research on natural selection and disease, and we'll be hearing more from James Sainsbury about that research later in this episode. We'll also hear how a PhD project was inspired by a single hat buried deep in the archives, and how a team of visiting researchers were able to prove once and for all that a cape in the collection at Worthing was worn by Queen Victoria. First, I wanted to get an overview of the role that research plays in the life of the museum. Research has always had a big part to play. My name is Jerry Connolly and I'm head of museum and collections. Certainly since I've been here, which is now nearly 12 years, have always seen it as a major part of what we do and what we deliver in terms of the service. Um, Because ultimately um, we have huge amounts of collections that we can only show and display a fraction of because of um, space limit. So those collections need to be used. We need to use them in, and we use them in many ways. So they go out on loans to other museums. But the big way they get used is, is research and students coming in, and that will be from um, academic point of view, so BA students, MA students, PhD students, and academics themselves, but also secondary schools, primary schools. We did some work a couple of years ago with the uh, Costume Society of America. America has a big reenactment culture, so history is told through reenactment, and, and they're very true to that reenactment. So we had the uh, Costume Society of America come in, and they were looking at 18th century dress. They reproduce faithfully to the width of the fabric, to the density of the fabric. They spin the threads to the right um, um, thickness so that the weave is exactly the same as it would have been in the 18th century, so that they can really recreate faithfully an 18th century dress in copy. Um, Their comment, which always makes me laugh, was we have landed on the mothership as far as 18th century dress is concerned, which is really interesting. And we don't have the amazing pieces that the V&A have that are um, provenance to 
a well-known figure of the period. What we do have is some really basic pieces that actually are lost in other collections or have just been lost over time. There's been a, a resurgence in actually going back and looking at original dress and, and investment in how dresses were made and constructed and how they actually would have fitted on the body and to give the proper silhouette for the period and our collections are used for that quite a lot by film companies and then we also get design companies coming in so the fashion design companies coming in looking for influences for their next season range so they'll come in as well and they're very much commercial so it's so although research, it's, it's a commercial and, and um, really important to the museum um, that, that's been used. The last number of years we've um, engaged a lot with PhD students and in fact we have two PhDs and students that have just started this year focused on our collections which is a new step for us, it's a real step change in terms of how we engage with that academia and they go to seminars around the world as part of their PhD research and giving talks and, and ongoing in their careers and we have examples of that of PhD students out of Brighton who have come and used the collection and when they go to uh, symposium seminars around the world they talk about what we're doing here and they talk about Worthing Museum and Worthing and how Worthing manages its collections and allows research and is very open to researchers coming in and so that is kind of a marketing as well so it kind of overlaps as far as those two are concerned but really puts us on the map and it isn't by accident that our collections are so well known around the world that actually I get research appointment requests from um, academics and students in America, China, uh, Australia and all over Europe, every country from Europe have been here at some point um, to look at the collections. I'm Jo or Jojo and I'm a postgraduate researcher based here researching the dress history collection at Worthing Museum. Um, I am researching the um, 20th century hat collection in the dress history collection here at Worthing which is vast and numerous and interesting and I'm particularly focusing on hats which appear to be handmade or homemade. I'm particularly interested in amateur crafts um, and things that people would have made for themselves, possibly at home, possibly without formal training. Um, and that's, that's the beginning of my research, that's my starting point. And how did you come to be interested in that particular area of research? What gave you the idea to want to do research on that topic? Um, oh, it's a couple of things. Um, one is that over the last few years, while being volunteer here, I've also been working for a milliner um, in Brighton doing hat making and that kind of thing. And I've got a background in textiles, so that's those things have always been interesting. I've always found those things interesting. Um, and also one of, my, one of my projects here as a volunteer over the last couple of years has been helping prepare quite a large collection of hats which went out on loan to the Basel um, Museum in Switzerland, which happened um, about 18 months ago now. And part of the preparation for that was documentation and research on those, on a collection of hats, was over 70 hats that went out. And some of those went to a conservation studio in Brighton where I was able to go and do some work experience there, which was really valuable. And during that time, I started to look differently at the hat collection and start thinking about what's interesting about them and what's unique. Um, 
a lot, a lot of the hats that went out on that loan were chosen because they had fancy labels in them or they were made by um, famous hat makers or that kind of thing. And all the, I was more interested in the ones that got left behind, the ones that were the rejects or the ones that the visiting um, curator person had looked at and had dismissed. And then the more I looked at those, the more I thought that the ones that don't have labels or are a little bit curious, that there was some research to be done there. So I, I started to formulate a bit of a plan. Um, and then the timing was amazing because a, 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 an expression of interest went out about a possible funded opportunity to do a PhD here at Worthing Collection um, in collaboration with the University of Brighton, which is where I have my master's degree from. So I was in a good place to go for that. And I came up with my research plan kind of hinged around one particular hat that I found in the collection here, which I wish I could show it to you, but I have to describe it. And it's um, entirely homemade. It's bright purple satin. Um, it's dated to about 1939. And it has a large a faux bird on it made out of feathers. And it has a veil. So it's got a bit of a medieval wimple kind of vibe. And um, yeah, and I just was absolutely captivated by this piece. And it made me do a bit of research around what was fashionable in the world of hats at the time. And I, I came up with a hypothesis about why a person may have created that and worn it to a special occasion just at, just before the Second World War. Um, it was made locally by a local person. Um, I could definitely do a bit more research on that, possibly find out a bit about that family. Um, but it came into the museum about 10 years ago, 15 years ago or something like that. So it's not a recent donation. Um, but yeah, no one's ever done any work on it. And it's completely unlike anything else that's here or anything else that I've ever seen. So that was my starting point. And I got funding and here I am. From Jerry's perspective, Studying the collections at Worthing gives students and other researchers an opportunity to see the wider context of their research and to come across items that might inspire them to ask different questions. Students come and, and they come with not, um, so probably haven't used an archive before, some of them. Um, so they'll come with a perceived idea of how collections are archived and, and that's difficult because they'll come in and they'll want to see um, 1850 to 1859 um, corsets. We don't catalogue in that way so we, we catalogue more broadly because we don't have a huge collection of those items. So they have to come in and they'll start looking at so the boxes I take out for them to see those corsets might be two or three but it'll have courses from earlier and from much later so they're seeing more than they they're seeing it in a bigger context and that often changes their view as well but it's clear that the learning flows both ways jerry and his team often learn something new about the collections at worthing when researchers come to study them very often you'll show the same items to students coming in doing the research but they'll be looking at it from a different angle and just having those conversations with those students about how they're looking at something will inform how we interpret our collection and we're not precious about the information we hold about our collection. You know, we, we have a limitation with um, our resources to research the collections so if somebody comes in and said that's not that, that's this and it's this date um, we'll change it, you know, if they're giving a good argument that we have got some detail wrong, we're happy to change that. So it's constantly informing and updating 
the, the knowledge we have around our own collections. So it works both ways. Can you think of any particular days when you came in and because of what you found in a box or because of what you mm. found on, on a label, um, the, 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 the idea you've got for the direction of your own research changed a little bit or you got some new inspiration for a, an additional question that you want to ask? Or? Um, yeah, there's, um, I think one example would be um, there are, there's a great many hats from the 1920s to the 1960s and I had seen them all. Um, but it was only when I was going back through them and looking and comparing them with a little cardboard. We've still got a little index card system for everything that came into the museum prior to about 2005. It's all computerised as well, but I quite like the card system. Um, and it was only when I went through them and cross-referenced them, I realised that five of the hats that came in that are from about 1935 to 1950 were all belonged to the same person. And she had either made them herself or adapted them. She'd got something from a shop and she'd altered it. So she'd added her own coloured trims to them or she'd tweaked the shape or done different things to them. And um, it was, I, I instantly saw those five disparate objects in a completely new light because they had, they had a connection, they had a biography um, and they had, they had a story of one person who was in her own way really quite creative and ingenious with with what she wanted to um, achieve in her personal dress I suppose and how she wanted to kind of shape her appearance and her identity and often that, that kind of backstory is missing with things but that kind of made me that that made me start thinking about um, about little collections within collections and um, sort of that that those, those sorts of little individual stories and because often you sort of see Often the temptation with dress history is to see a piece of clothing or a hat, for example, as like an archetype of a style from a particular place or a time, rather than actually seeing it as something that was belonged to a living, breathing person, and they might and has has been through changes and has its own little life cycle. In relation to the archaeology collection here, what's what kind of researchers have you been engaging with recently and what kind of questions have you been exploring through that research? Oh well it's 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 very varied, a bit like the archaeological collections are. So we have um, we've had researchers come in looking at our, our Stone Age material and we, we literally have hundreds of boxes of flint tools from the local downland, uh, where you had some um, large flint mine complexes in, in the Neolithic. So there's been a lot of interest in that research over the last five years or so. Um, so we've had Dr. Anne Teverin from the University of Manchester. Um, Matt Pope um, from UCL has been, Dr. Matt Pope, sorry, has been looking at it as well. Um, some of the Paleolithic material. Um, and uh, also John Bukowski, who's uh, over based in East Sussex, he's been doing field studies on these flint mines. Um, you know, Roman material, we've had a few, especially students looking at Roman material. Um, and uh, as, as, we, as we speak, we're undergoing a, a large collaboration, a collaborative project on Highdown Hill. So this is called the High Down Revisited Project. Um, it involves obviously Worthing Museum um, and, and the collections we have here from that site. Um, it also involves uh, Dr. Sue Harrington um, from UCL, um, Dr. Scott Chaussey from um, University of Winchester, uh, and Dr. Anna Chaussey from the University of Winchester, and they're doing geophysics and osteoarchaeology, uh, whereas Sue is doing the grave goods. So we're collaborating with them on this, this big project to refocus on High Down, look back at the old notes, and actually try and make a a substantial report which has never been done on that site and it's such an, uh, an important early uh, medieval burial site um, you know possibly with uh, Germanic immigrants 
buried in there, who came over after the, um, the end of uh, Roman imperial authority in this country. Um, so it's, it's very, very exciting. Um, we also had Dr. Ellen Swift from the University of Kent come over and she was looking at some of the grave goods from High Down a couple of years ago and she found a um, very interesting uh, little point about some of the brooches is that they're actually, they look like they're gold, but they're actually bronze. They've just been coated in a very, very thin layer of gold to try and give this appearance of, um, you know, uh, wealth, where really these people probably aren't quite as wealthy as they would like to make out. Um, so we do find interesting things out about our, our pieces like that. Can you tell me a bit more about um, the work you were discussing earlier when I, when I came in on the DNA testing? Yes, yeah, so it's a very, very exciting project um, being undertaken by the Francis Crick Institute, um, led by Dr Tom Booth. Um, he's uh, looking at 3,000 individuals from across Britain. Um, these are human remains and uh, from various periods, so all the way back from the Stone Age up to the medieval period. And he's looking at um, natural selection and disease. Um, so we're very excited. He came in yesterday um, and he's taken away uh, 16 samples of uh, individuals who are buried at Highdown Hill, um, which links in nicely with our Highdown Revisited project. Uh, another two individuals of, uh, from the Romano-British period, one individual from the Bronze Age and another from the Medieval period. I think the Medieval burial was from Stenning, Maudlin is Stenning. Um, and what he's going to be doing is he's going to be um, subjecting the samples to uh, DNA analysis. So we should hopefully, if the DNA is intact, be able to find out um, the genetic group these people belong to. And, and that's particularly important for Highdown because there's a lot of debate as to whether these people were um, Germanic immigrants at the end of the, the Roman period or they were locals who took on the, the fashions and the dress sense of, of Germanic peoples. Um, he should also be able to find out about appearance, um, the gender of the person, um, the age and possibly any diseases. Now what's interesting about Highdown is that it's, it's being used as a cemetery when we know, well we now know, that the plague of Justinian hits uh, in the early 6th century. And the plague of Justinian is really the first black death. It wipes out a third to a, fifth, uh, a, third to a half the people in Europe. And it's named after the, the emperor um, based in Constantinople at the time. So <clears throat> um, there is possible that he will actually see evidence of the bubonic plague in the teeth uh, or the DNA of these uh, these individuals, and that would be a really interesting story. And we'll also explain why you have such a big population drop off in Sussex between, you know, the the fourth and say the seventh century, um, when it's recorded by Bede again. Um, so that's really really exciting. We're hoping to get the results through from that over the next few months. Um, it's it's amazing really that all he's really using to get this information is either a tooth or or a, a petrous bone, which is a small bone in the ear, or an ear ossicle, which is a you get three in each year and they're tiny, tiny little bones. And he won't be um, destroying these samples. There'll be a very small drill going into them to get the sample he needs and then they'll be returned here and reunited with the bodies that they're originally part of. When they're not supporting world-leading academic research, the team at Worthing Museum are helping to solve mysteries a little closer to home. When I have a chance, I, I, I delve into the research in the archaeological collections. I mean, a good example was a couple of years ago um, had a, a, a couple in Goring found a spearhead under their rose beds when they were digging in their garden. Um, and there was a lot of debate um, between myself and some of the volunteers here and then the fine liaison officer as to what period this belonged to. And we think it was probably late Roman, early Saxon. Um, but it was that debate that it generated. You know, the second it came out of the ground, we were measuring it, we were, you know... Uh, going through the different options of what period it could be. And that's very exciting. I mean, you also get people bringing in flint tools, um, 
which I'm, I'm quite confident of identifying the periods for. So, for example, we've had uh, a couple from Offington who keep finding flint flakes. These are sort of the debitage from people actually working flint and it's the bits they don't want and they just leave on the ground. Then it looks like they're Neolithic. So that's a really nice connection for them, especially as they go walking up Sisbury often. That's probably the same people who mined this flint from Sisbury have brought it down into their garden and they've actually been making it into tools. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's not just academic research. It's... it's uh, active research sometimes with the people who find it in the local area you know because they want to research it as well and then we work collaboratively on that. Have there been any particularly surprising or exciting discoveries that have been generated by the research that's been done on the collection? That, um, I think the one that springs to mind so in terms of um, um, just discovering things in the collection so we've we have a cape in the collection um, from around um, mid-1890s and we, the, the cards, the, the catalogue cards had said that it had been owned by Queen Victoria um, and the provenance behind it was pretty good. Um, the person who had donated it had worked um, um, in the residence of Queen Victoria on the Isle of Wight, uh, Osborne House, and she, so we knew that, and, but nevertheless there was never any evidence, so it was never proven. And a um, few years back, the um, historic Rye palaces were for uh, Queen uh, Elizabeth II's um, Diamond Jubilee. They were doing an exhibition in Kensington Palace, and they were doing research. Interestingly, the angle they took on the exhibition was that they were going to look back at Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee in 1897 and look at objects in terms of how the public engaged with the Jubilee and celebrated it. And we're looking in museum collections for items that showed evidence of that. And we have a few things with Royal Connection, but we did have a pair of slippers um, that had been embroidered by somebody and it was a kit set that you could buy and you made it was a very fashionable thing to do at the time and you would embroider the slippers and then you would put the sole on them and, and, and have them. we have a pair in the collection so that, they used that but while they were down doing the research on the collection we showed them the cape and they did some research into it and they came back to us and they uh, found a photograph of Queen Victoria wearing the cape that we have in the collection and that was brilliant. That in itself is like, that's the provenance we needed. So the story is correct. The person who donated it did have that connections, was given to her. What was even more amazing is that the photograph was the official photograph released by the palace of Queen Victoria for her Diamond Jubilee. Um, so that was amazing. That, that, that kind of thing is rare and just fantastic when they, when they kind of emerge and come through. Um, and kind of really again highlight the with some time and with research those stories there'll be others of those stories in the collections we do get a lot of researchers in which is fantastic but often I mean it's, it's exciting for me because I get to see things I haven't seen yet and the volunteers get to see things that they had no idea was even here um, on Tuesday we were reboxing things and two volunteers they're both called Emily um, were here and they were really excited because there's a box and it's got a pair of Queen Victoria's knickers in it and this was a this was a really big thrill for them because one of them is a big Queen Victoria enthusiast 
and they were taking selfies with these voluminous drawers and getting really overwhelmed by the sort of royal provenance of them and it was just a joy they were so happy and um yeah i think that i think there's a lot of fun to be had what we do is obviously you know we do everything we will care and within you know the bounds of conservation guidelines and all those things but there's there's a lot of scope for enjoyment as well which is why we do it the female voices exhibition was inspired by marion frost the museum's first curator the preparations for the exhibition gave jerry and the team at worthing a chance to carry out new research into her life the exhibition came out of um, our early history so our early history being curated by marion frost and, um, and the, I think all the collections were influenced by her. So she was a really formidable and, and informative person within the, co the collection development of the museum. And we got to know more information about and we got to know her better. So there's something about all of the societies that she was interested in, the things that she did, other than run the museum and the library and, um, and, and put this institution in place. Um, she was involved in archaeology and was interested in the arts. And so although not formally trained, she had a real interest in and, and was member of lots of those societies. Joe's research is revealing new insights into women's lives in the first half of the 20th century. As part of her research, Joe has put together an exhibition which allows the uncelebrated work of a lesser-known female artist to take centre stage. The beauty of my project is that I've put, Jerry has very kindly given me free reign just to rummage and find whatever I can that relates to millinery, hat making, amateur craft, female domesticity because it's very much tied up with women's lives and the sorts of things that women were expected to be able to do, for example, in the first half of the 20th century. Um, they were expected to have particular types of skills and to fit dressmaking or making of their own um, <clears throat> personal items sort of around their family life and I'm really interested in all of that and often they did it um, without any kind of official or formal training so what the information that they got might have been they might have been taught by an older relative or they might have taught themselves so for example I'm going through all the fashion magazines from about 1900 to 1950 at the moment and there's loads of guidance in there. There's lots of dressmaking patterns, coupons that you could send off and you could get a, a pattern back to make yourself a hat and matching gloves and lots of emphasis on economy and thrift and female attractiveness. There's all this kind of discourse going on about what a woman should be. And that really interests me because there's been such a huge cultural shift since that people aren't really expected to make their own clothes anymore. The small exhibition that's in the Norwood Gallery at the moment, The Ladies' Paradise, um, was was my baby and I did the research for that um, and it's a collection of Edwardian um, fashion drawings which were donated to the museum and there were one female artist portfolio of her drawings for um, she worked for Peter Robinson which is a major department store in London at Oxford Circus and she was working for them between about 1900 and 1915. Just Ida Pritchard? Yeah, okay. Ida Pritchard and um, so I had come across her drawings while doing, while doing some research and I think the, the idea was that we would have like a little kind of, originally we were going to put some of her drawings in the female voices and then we came up with the idea that, it, that there was a sufficient body of material to actually do like a little kind of mini sort of satellite exhibition that worked with the female voices um, but was a standalone and we could, that we could use pieces of dress from the dress history collection and get those out as well so that we tried to find things that corresponded to the kinds of things that 
kinds of clothing that Ida Pritchard was drawing for part of her work. Um, and it was important to me to show her as, as an artist in her own right, but also as a commercial artist, because I think the majority of the pieces in the women's voices are from fine artists, like painters, printmakers or sculptors. And I thought it was quite, it would be interesting to sort of show an un, a, a very a not well-known person who was a very prolific graphic artist, but because she was working in a commercial arena, her work would be seen and valued differently, I suppose. Um, but it really shows a really fascinating insight into women's dress at the beginning of the century, but also sort of think about what kind of creative careers might have been open to women in that period. Um, often the sort of, you know, when you look at the big kind of monograph books on the history of fashion illustration, they, they, there's lots of famous names that kind of crop up, particularly in the Edwardian period, and they're all, they're all men, they're all avant-garde, they're all well known for um, drawing um, Paris couture in a very particular stylized way. And there's not much mention made of, of those kinds of drawings or also the fact that there were women working in that industry at all. So it was really important to me to, to get those out and have them mounted and framed and out there and hopefully appreciated. The team at Worthing Museum are a busy bunch. If they were gifted some free time to carry out their own research, what would they choose to look into? Sisby Ring, as a whole, throughout all the periods. Um, there has been work done at Sisbury Ring over the decades, especially on the Neolithic flint mines, and that's something I'd like to focus on again. I think what's missing from um, Sisbury Ring, I mean, if you look at our displays downstairs, we're not very strong on the Iron Age, but we have the second largest hill fort in Britain from the Iron Age, just you know, which is Sisbury Ring, just above just above the town here. Um, it doesn't seem to be that there's that much work being done on on the construction of it. Really, there's been a few excavations, but most of these were before, before World War Two. Um, now it's a scheduled ancient monument, you can't excavate it. So it'd have to be more about field walking, measurements, and, and looking at the wider landscape around it. So I'd be very interested to see, uh, I'd, I'd really like to focus on the Iron Age, because it's where we're not that strong with our collections, and I'd like to know why. Um, we know that material culture wasn't as strong as it was in the Bronze Age, and afterwards, of course, in the Roman period, you have an explosion of material culture. But there's something missing there, um, and I, I would, I'd probably like to focus on Sisbury Ring. Yeah. We have some um, really interesting early um, uh, 1600s embroideries with a jacket and a small piece of fabric beautifully embroidered. And I would like to do some research around the late 1500s around how the dissolution of the monasteries and that skill of embroidering for the church changed to the domestic sphere, or did it? I don't know. It's, there's something there, I think, that would be great to do some more research on and, and how those people with those skills continue to make a living. One of the things that I was really excited about when I was writing my proposal for the project was the idea that we could do um, some making workshops at the museum. So I going to lead some um, hat making or millinery workshops here that people can people can come to um, and you don't have to have any expertise the idea is that anyone can come and give it a go um, and making pieces from for example hat making patterns from the 1930s or we might have a go at making a replica of something that's here in the collection um, and the idea is that we'll think about how people made things and the kinds of skills they might have had and put them to the test and see how see how workable these things were um, how achievable they are and yeah just to try and really think about objects from the point of view of the maker um, as well as the as well as the wearer I'm really hoping that 
from that, I might get some contacts and that I could possibly do some interviews or oral testimony with local people who, for example, you know, their great aunt might have made hats or might have been a milliner or may have done some training in that area in a local store or made things at home, that kind of thing. I'd be, I would absolutely love to be able to capture that kind of information because you know it's out there, but it's finding the right people and making it happen. Um, so I'm really interested in the decline of hat wearing after the Second World War as well, because for a very long time it was an everyday universal thing. And then in the 50s and 60s that really starts to change. So if I could find some people to talk to about that, or if somebody has, has a relative who defiantly continued wearing that, making and wearing hats, or that's the dream. So that's, that's another public engagement angle. And I'm hoping that out of all of this and my research, we'll have some really fantastic things to make an exhibition out of here at the museum as well um it would be really wonderful if people wanted to include a hat that they had made in the collection and have it displayed alongside what inspired it or yeah put it in to do that that would be that would be the fantasy to make that happen one of the plans for 2021 maybe 2022 is to actually go for funding to do a worthing big dig and this is where people in worthing can sign up and they actually dig a square a square meter test bit in their own garden um you know, there'll be bits of Lego and old chocolate wrappers, but that's archaeology. That's all part of the story of, of Worthing and the people living in it. But there will also be Roman pottery, um, flint tools going back thousands of years, you know, possibly even Saxon material, uh, Norman material, you know, medieval stuff. Um, so in the sense of a, a giant research project, that's something that's definitely in the pipeline. I think that'd be quite popular with, with residents as well. The idea would be to put on a big exhibition once that's once that's been completed. So it'd be a sort of a weekend big dig, but actually be getting hundreds of people involved in researching their own space and their own in, on their own gardens and and um, possibly in public parks as well and things like that. Yeah, really exciting prospect. Yeah. Thanks to Jerry Connolly, James Sainsbury, and Joe Lance for joining me for this episode of the Worthing Museum and Art Gallery podcast, and thank you for listening. This episode was recorded before the museum closed its doors to the public due to the spread of coronavirus. In the next and final episode, we'll be exploring how the museum has responded to these unprecedented times and the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead. Although the museum is currently closed, the team are working hard to make sure the public are still able to engage with the collections online. On the Museum and Art Gallery website, you can take a virtual tour of the museum and walk through a digital version of the Ladies' Paradise exhibition featured in this episode. Search for the Worthy Museum and Art Gallery online, on Facebook and on Instagram. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not subscribe and have the next episode come to you as soon as it's released. See you next time.